Good afternoon. Welcome to our Christmas service. <laughs> this is one of those times where you can genuinely say, Christmas has come early. Praise the Lord. Um, so yeah, it's got to feel a little bit like Christmas, but maybe not a Christmas that you know. You know, I've never known what it is to, um, to celebrate Christmas when it's hot. You know, like many people go away to like, you know, nice Caribbean holidays or whatever. And I've never known what it is because to some extent that, um, you know, Bing Crosby has got us thinking about the whole idea that it needs to be snowy and all the rest of it. But so now we get that little taste of what it is to have Christmas with a bit of heat. So we're obviously we're in Luke 2 today. And so um, if you turn with me to Luke 2, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And then um, let me read and we'll pray. So we're, I'm going to read to verse 21, even though I believe that 21 really kind of comes into next week. But we'll read that because, you know, people are in two minds as to which, which section it is in. But let me read in your hearing. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was... The angel, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, um, 
Lord, your word is, is always something in which, dear Lord God, we should reverence. And as we come, dear Lord, for it to now, um, Lord, we want to come and give thanks, Lord. We've sung our praises. We have, as it were, um, hopefully tenderized our hearts to be able to accept those things, dear Lord God, especially the truth of the incarnation and what that means for us, the hope that we have as Christians. For all the struggles we may have had through the week, dear Lord God, to be able to see that, Father, our life has purpose because of this birth. Lord, help us to grasp that reality, dear Lord. And Lord God, again, to gain, as it were, that sense of perspective, that, Father, in the grand scheme of things, you are a good God, and we are your creation, dear Lord God. And all things will indeed work together for good. So, Lord, as we come to you, Lord God, we thank you for the fact that, Lord God, you will indeed speak to your church, even as your Holy Spirit desires to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when you see a crowd gather around a venue, you know, with people dressed differently, um, you start to suddenly realize that whatever is happening in that place is not the same as usual. You know, maybe you go to the cinema and all of a sudden, you know, um, there are a bunch of guys in brown robes and beams of light and you suddenly realize, oh no, they made another Star Wars movie, haven't they? And this is the first day, you know. All those kind of things kind of give you a hint that something unique is happening. And that's exactly what happens in life, isn't it? You know, you walk and if something is new, if people are dressed differently and if there is a crowd, all of a sudden we know that something beyond the normal has happened. We have moved, as it were, out of that realm of the normal acts within our culture into something that was earmarking something that's quite special. And such is the birth of Christ. You know, we are here seeing a significant event that is veiled in, ins in insignificant circumstances. In other words, when you look at it on the face value, it's just a, just a woman from the north giving birth in the south with a husband hanging around in normal circumstances. Even the circumstances of being within, you know, are in animals, the whole idea that you, you're in a culture where people live with animals, much like we still do today, believe it or not. But I guess not with goats and sheep and pigs. But that's the reality of where they were. It was a simple, normal event. But what we find in the text is that this has been reflected. What has been, what has been reflected with the angel's appearance is that this is not any normal birth. And that is why this is so important. And I guess why it was important for Luke. The birth of Christ is really about I believe, the culmination of history. The culmination of history. When we, we've been, obviously, for us who have been here for a while, we've realized that when we go through the Bible, we see that the gospel is pretty much there right from the very beginning and is being played out. And, and we are, we're looking forward to the events where this will really actually take its, take its, um, find its fulfillment. You know, the reason why I say this, and, I, and, and this is one of the things I was pondering as I was thinking about, well, how do I make this, how do I take something that we're so familiar with and, in, in, as it were, and re-emphasize 
the importance of Christ's birth, especially as sometimes we like to downplay the significance of Christmas, especially in contrast to Easter and the resurrection. You know, and one of the things that, that I think the thing that really stuck with me is that the reason that Adam and Eve do not become the first and last humans is that Christ, meaning the anointed, will be born to make sure that uh, God's vision for humanity will be fulfilled. Let me read this and then kind of expand on that idea. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20 tells us this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without a blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The simple fact is that this event of the incarnation was made world history as we know, as we know it possible. I believe this to be a reasonable assumption because I find it hard to imagine a world where there is no possible redemption for humanity except through his own, his own efforts. So can you imagine us now? I mean, you know, I don't, I, I don't assume we would have got anywhere near past the first 1,000 years. But the reality is that try to imagine a world where there is no Christ coming. There is no rescue. Would that be merciful, you know, to, for God to allow humanity to carry on knowing where we would end up? And as I pondered this, I suddenly realized that this is, I guess it's very much like one of those, you know, to be somewhat crude, but at the same time, it, the principle stands. The whole idea of being insured. You know, when everybody, when, when people undertake, I don't know, even just even to set up here as a church, the insurance that if things go wrong, will there be the means to pay and make sure that people are taken care of? And that's what we find is that Jesus becomes the insurance that the earth will have a future, a future worth living, a future for all of us in which we can enjoy to some extent. And without that, without Jesus as being that guarantor, that Lloyd's Bank of the spiritual realm, to underwrite, history as we know it would not have had a chance. This is why I believe that the proto-gospel, or the proto-evangelion as they call it, had to be present at the beginning of history for it to have legitimacy for its own continuation. That in that sense, for it to continue, there needed to be, well, why we continue? Well, this is what Genesis 3, 14 to 15 tells us, isn't it? The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. For this reason, I think it is right that in the context of, especially in the Western world, that Jesus is presented as being at the center of time and history. You know, we, today we have the terms B.C., before Christ, and A.D., 
Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, that marks time. That as people have gone through history, we suddenly realize that this truth was true for them too. That history indeed is only possible because Christ was born. Christians and even secular people alike live under these terms. Even now, now we're starting to find that we are, they're trying to push against that in this post-Christian world and trying to rename these things. But I guess at least for the last 2,000 years, this were impossible, this were, these were important terms for us. There was life before Christ and there is life in Christ. And that's how we measure time. So let's look at our text today, but we're not going to, I don't want to kind of sit down and look at the details because it's something that we're very familiar with, but I kind of want to point, I guess, maybe to the highlights today. And as we're looking at the first section, verses 1 to 7, at the actual birth of Jesus, you know, there are numerous ironies here, which I guess none of you, especially if you've been in church for a minute, um, will not be lost on. And one is that here is the mighty Julius, um, well, Augustus Caesar here, who is, again, part of, as we've been saying, part of the people, place, and period, who's kind of been highlighted. This is the circumstances that Jesus was, was there in. No doubt, Augustus was born to, again, very good circumstances, being obviously the, um, the nephew, the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, being part of that royalty within Rome. And here we have a king born, as it were, in a stable, or born, as it were, in a house, with a stable. And that's the irony, isn't it, that the context of two kings being born, or two kings being around, but both start off life very differently. The census is obviously an important fact for, for Luke because to some extent it points to how earthly circumstances that we seem, sometimes we, we can downplay. You know, if we had to kind of make a journey, you know, I, I mean, censuses today are very kind of practical things. So you get a form um, through the door and you get threatened that if you don't fill it in, you'll have to pay was it, I don't know, 200 pounds or whatever it was, that if you don't fill it in, you know, no one tells us, you know, actually, you've got to go back to the place you were born, uh, go to the, you know, the town hall there and make sure you fill in all the, you know, the relevant details. None of us have to go through that hassle. But for this particular situation, it was that way. Micah 5, 2 tells us this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Isn't that interesting there, that, that talking about the ancient of days, about the whole idea that the birth of Christ was anticipated from ancient of days, that whole idea of referring to time beyond time, or a period beyond time, that in a sense, the solution to the problem was there before the problem even arised. That's a marvelous thing and a wonderful God we serve.
One of the more interesting contrasts of the incarnation is that the humble circumstances, the humble circumstances he was born is the, one, is, the, is, is the first point. And the next one is that there's a subtle, as it were, pitting of two kings against each other. One of the trademarks of Augustus's reign was that he had a long period of peace after um, at least two civil wars, as far as I remember. The one which obviously was for um, to take revenge, so to speak, against those who killed his, his um, granduncle, Julius Caesar, where he now eliminates those other generals. And then obviously with Mark Antony. And then, to some, then he has a long period of peace. And so one of the things that people would have noted about Augustus was that he, he brought in this long period of peace. And at the same time, we have Jesus, who's also been born, who has been proclaimed as the one who brings peace. So there's this interesting contrast there as well that is subtle, but again, maybe for people at the time, it would have been way more important to say, wow, interesting, isn't it? Here's a guy who brought peace, but then here is another one who will bring, in a, as it were, a new idea of what peace can be like. And we'll explore that a little bit later as well. One of the things, I, again, I, I, my third point I, I kind of want to make in this section is, again, it's the whole idea of the census itself. Jesus, as it were, being born where he was, as it was prophesied he would be born, but at the same time, he is, as it were, being submitted to a census. Maybe something quite futile. But here is the truth is that, and this is some of the things that played out, especially as I kind of look at where the gospel is leading us to the eschaton, the coming of Christ, that is, the end of all things, is that Christ gives the final census, doesn't he? And a census like no other. A census that calls both living and dead to take account. Where everybody is called to register, as it were, their Lord, the lordship of, of Jesus Christ. And to receive their judgment. Though it's something we can't stress, but at the same sort of time, we have to look at, Jesus actually does finally call the one who called him and his parents to be in Bethlehem will eventually call Augustus to his own judgment. And that's something that plays out. And that's something that was on my mind. I said, wow, here is a king that finally has the last shot that calls Augustus and Julius. And every other emperor and every other king to bow before the king of kings. What a powerful picture that is. The next section is um, eight and from 8 and 20, the, the, the second half of this chapter, where the, where the focus is now on the shepherds. And, you know, and it's, it's a telegram, a heavily telegram. I was thinking about this today, and this is one of those things that have died the death today, isn't it? It's the telegram. You know, someone is born, you know, and then, you know, Normally, someone in the hospital comes and tells you, oh, do you want to sell a telegram? And da-da-da-da-da, you know, it's expensive business. But, you know, you can put like, you know, 10 or I think it's 10 or 20 names and we'll all send out a telegram to everybody to let everybody know the good news of the birth of your child, the weight and everything and, and 
name, if you had obviously named them at that point. Here we have the heavenly telegraph, maybe even the first ever telegram in that sense. This section obviously is unique to, to Luke's gospel as well. No one else mentions it. And we see that there is a tension between this being a, a landmark event in the world that is veiled in both the mundane, the commonplace, as I started out saying, and humble circumstances. In Matthew's gospel, the arrival of the wise men from the east who followed a star is the only indicator in the natural realm that something significant has occurred. But again, even with the, the wise men, it's something that happens a number of years after, a couple of years after Jesus was born. However, in Luke's gospel, the moment is marked with a heavenly host that brings a divine telegram to shepherds. From Luke's letter, later account in chapter 19, we see that big events do require some form of response in kind. In other words, from Luke's perspective at the very least, things need a response. Major points and major turning points in history require a response. Let me read through Luke, you know, Luke 19, 37 to 39 to kind of clarify this point. And this is obviously the triumphal entry. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, there are, there are points in history which are so important and significant that there requires a response. Praise from somebody, some acknowledgement that God is doing something. Giving witness, and then, you know, obviously to some extent, we, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters might take this to another extent, but there is something to be said about the whole idea of registering something that God is doing in the building, or in the circumstances, or in history. The whole idea that I can't sit down and not say something, and not respond. We need to respond, and you know, and it's not to be tied to some kind of cultural thing where well, I don't really do that. God, the creator of heaven and earth, is doing something. And the significance of this event is obviously is something that I believe is earmarked in Daniel 9, 25, about the coming of the king, that the date in which Jesus arrives, that, that Daniel says, your king will arrive. What does it say here in, in, in Daniel 9, 25? Know therefore and understand that from the point going on, from the point going out of the word to restore the building to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again, and the squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And so this whole idea that the temple will be rebuilt, and then at the final end of that seven weeks, not obviously being several literal weeks, uh, but I guess uh, um, spiritual equivalents, that that day in which Jesus arrives is significantly acknowledges this was the day that the king was revealed. Remember, Jesus is very hush-hush about the whole idea of him being who he was and very quiet. But this is the point where he says, now everything can be revealed. Now the people can respond. Hosanna to the king. 
Now he is openly declaring who he is. The people needed to respond. And so it is at this point, at the birth of, I guess, the person who makes history possible needed a response, needed a heavenly host to say something significant has happened. I can't let this event go without making some kind of response to it. So the heights of heaven, and this is again another interesting contrast, isn't it? We should also come as no surprise that the heavenly, the heavenly majesty of the angels is contrasted with the lowly yet significant role of the shepherd. You know, our Christmas series showed that the significance of the, the shepherds being witnesses and why their role was quite important in being representative of those who witnessed the new king is that the shepherd was an important role in ancient Near Eastern um, um, history because kings would pride themselves of being shepherds of the people, people who took care of them, who were there for their well-being. And that these shepherds were significant. But at the same time, it's the, the whole idea of the, these lowly men, these men that would be, as it were, the you know, rough and rugged men, outdoors men, here being met by the heavenly host. It's like the heights of heaven meet with the lowly profession, just as the glory of God is being bored into a feeding trough. It's the, these, these, these contrasts that we get. The glory of the Son of God being born in a lowly feeding trough. And the glories of heaven and the angels meeting with the rugged outdoors men. The next detail I want to kind of focus on is, is the titles that they give to Jesus, which I want to spend a little bit of time on. In verse 11, he says that a savior who is the Christ, the Lord, who is a savior who is Christ, the Lord. None of these titles are to be interpreted, I think, in any casual way. In that they mean what they usually mean in their typical context. And again, remembering as we, we, we unpack these things, especially if you, you know, gain a grasp, even of the English language, that sometimes words mean different things in different contexts. And as you say them, you can say, well, well, what does this mean? Israel has known many saviors, and I want to focus in on savior first. Has Jesus come in the same vein? In Judges 2:16, it says this, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Is Jesus coming just like another judge? Another guy that will deal with their physical enemies and remove them from the land. Because these judges were, as it were, forms of saviors. And one of the, the things about the gospel is, is, is that actually, this is not the saving that Israel needed. And this was one of the great misunderstandings of Jesus, even in his own time. Because in Israel's context, they wanted another judge. They wanted another David. They wanted a guy that could beat giants. Because the belief was, is that if I get rid of all of my external problems, everything else will be all right. If I get rid of that guy at work or that, that lady at work, then, then everything will be better. And we often come with the same idea. That the Lord is there to deal with our external issues. And that once we are saved from those things, our lives will be better. 
Jesus is not that type of saviour. And I think Romans 7 points this out. Let me read this at length because I think it's important. Because this is what I believe that Jesus is a saviour for. And it's obviously that great part where, G, where, where Paul breaks down the struggle of the believer. And maybe even his own personal life. And this is it. For I do not understand, reading sorry from verse um, 15. For I do not understand my own actions. Yeah, Romans 7 verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So how is it no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me? For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find, to be, find it to be a law when I, am, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see my mem- in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see how Paul identifies that Christ is the one that brings the relief of this inner struggle. It's not the evil around us that is the problem. It's the evil within. There's, um, you know, what just something just came to mind again. It's a, it's a great article of um, back in the time of the Victorian time where um, it was, wrote, you know, written out of all the things that were going wrong with the world. And, and um, G.K. Chesterton, a famous um, Christian apologist, um, had written back um, in response to this, uh, I think, I believe it was in the Times at, the, at that point, had written back and said, what's wrong with the world? And he says, me. And that's the response that we need. What's wrong with the world? Me. You know, kind of reminds me of another advert I saw, you know. You're not in traffic, you are the traffic. <laughs> you know. We're all thinking that everybody else doesn't have a right to use the road. It's just me and, and, you know, and everyone else is there thinking, oh, but if only they weren't there. And that's the thing. It's us. It's me. I'm the problem. Who do I need to be saved from? As Paul writes, I need to be saved from me. That's the saviour we need. That's the saviour that no one was looking for. And if we're honest, even we're not really looking for before the Christ arrested our hearts. The salvation that Christ offers is that which starts from within the individual. So in this way, this is how Jesus is a savior like no one else. He saves me, not me from my enemies. The next title, Christ, or the Anointed One, or in Hebrew, Messiah. So Christ, in, in, in Greek, anointed, 
in, um, in English, Messiah in Hebrew. I said, within the history of Israel, the only people who were considered the anointed would, have been, would be the king and high priest. And strangely enough, in Leviticus, you could even say to some extent, um, a leper was anointed if he ever got healed. And so that's an interesting um, kind of contrast as well, where lepers themselves were, were anointed if they actually experienced the miracle of healing. But traditionally, it was the king and the high priest. Jesus actually fulfills both these roles as the supreme high priest, as attested by the writer of Hebrews, and also the role of the king, as demonstrated in the Gospel of Matthew. First, let me turn to Hebrews 5, 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and a supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In that way, Jesus fulfills one, the anointed high priest, who eternally saves, not, as it were, saves you until next year. See you next year. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, eternally save. <coughs> and <coughs> then turning to Matthew. And when Jesus came into the district of, sorry, Matthew 16, 13 to 17, the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So now while... <coughs> <clears throat> so why we are, in a sense, looking at this, Matthew makes, again, this whole gospel to, to show that he is the Messiah, he's the fulfillment, and why this text becomes quite important to Matthew's gospel. And Matthew 22, 41 to 45 is, again, another one. I won't read that, but, again, for those who are taking notes, uh, Matthew 22, 41 to 45 is another one where, again, the affirmation of him being the Christ, being the anointed one, being the Messiah whom they were looking for. The last title I want to deal with is Lord. Lord has, again, a full, fairly broad range of uses. It can refer to a husband, you know, Sarah called her husband Lord, as um, recorded by, I think, believe, I believe, Peter. A superior, such as nobility or a king, or even God. But as we look at John's gospel, and particularly the, the witness of, of Thomas, we see, again, that connection of Lord not being referring to anything other than just a mere superior, a superior rabbi or a superior um, in terms of just being um, advanced in the society, um, but actually being someone who is associated with God. And so, again, Lord being closely linked to God. And so John 20, 26 to 27 says this, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, 
and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, Lord, my Lord and my God. So Lord is, 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 is again, as we find that Jesus' life is played out, is, is attested as being a Lord, not merely by being a superior, but actually being God himself. The next thing I kind of want to deal with, and, and lastly, before we kind of wind up, is, is again, verse 14, I think is, again, quite important. And something I've, 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 I've strangely enough, not until recently, just said, how do I deal, you know, how do I deal with this? Do I say it or do I not say it? And I think it's important. So what does it mean by peace and goodwill to all men? Or, as I would like to phrase it, God will to all men. Glory in the highest and on earth, peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. That's the text. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, because the Christmas season can bring about a lot of goodwill and sentiment, we can often look at a verse like this and interpret it through the mood of the people or even just the season. We're in that season of goodwill, and this is how we are to look at the peace that is offered, and especially from that, I guess, that Charlie Brown perspective, isn't it, of peace and goodwill to all men, just to be, just to be a nice guy, just to be nicer, a little bit nicer than usual. Where we, you know, we go around, and I said, I feel good, and this overwhel- I have this overwhelming desire to be kind. I'm, I'm sure God feels just like me, that the little, you know, the, 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 the little slightly more touches to be a bit more patient with people walking slowly in front of us. You know, that little bit more patient to, you know, maybe to hold a door rather than just to walk through it and not hold it for someone. All those little things that everybody think makes the season so great. And in many ways, it does make it good. We'll be mistaken to think that the peace that God is offering is the peace that allows for families and even strangers to gather from out of the cold into warm homes and to eat rich food and engage in merriment. These are good, but is this what God is offering us? That's the question. And so often I think we are interpreting this text through what we feel in the season, because obviously now we're reading it out of season, it's it's a little bit easier to maybe hit it home. Is that the peace that God is offering If we allow the Bible to interpret itself rather than our cultural norms, we will find that the peace we are offered is actually quite distinct. The peace we are offered is actually peace with God. Hence, the end of the sentence limits the peace to with whom he is pleased. In other words, he has a relationship with. To clarify this, we need only uh, only look further ahead in Luke's gospel to chapter 12 and um, verse, chapters 12, verses 51 to 53, and it says this. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
I find it interesting, isn't it, that as Jesus goes through his ministry, he has to clarify this, this whole idea of what his mission of peace is about. And it's the fact that Jesus actually sees, not just in the future, but even the not-too-distant future, that the people that would have peace with God would come at the, at the expense of their peace with their relatives. In other words, in order for me to be close with God and to establish that relationship and to believe that Jesus has established this relationship with God, it will cost me my relationships. And within the lives of the disciples, this is exactly what happened. It would mean that homes would have to divide. People would have to leave their communities and their safety and be able to have to live, as it were, with Christians' brothers, as we see in the book of Acts. That they had to rely on the charity of Christian giving in order to survive, as probably no doubt businesses would have collapsed as people said, we're no longer going to buy anything from, from him anymore because he's one of them. And that was the peace that Jesus says. He says, actually, the peace I give you is not this whole idea of, of us all feeling sentimental and feeling great about each other. It's actually the whole idea that that peace of God comes, and that will be a great, obviously, benefit to you, but it also will come at the expense of your peace with others. So as much as um, we, can, we can roll with the spirit of, of goodwill during Christmas, Sometimes it's better to emphasize that the peace of God is better, if not the actual point of the season, if they are indeed any, following any, for, for any Christian reasons. And this kind of leads us, you know, in terms of application, what, what do we do with this? And again, that whole idea of the pagan roots of Christmas have long been established. But does that mean we need to abandon any association with it? And this whole idea that Christmas is this uh, pagan festival, so why do it? And there's some interesting things that go on with it. I've ranged, as a younger believer, I've ranged in my opinion over the years. And as a younger believer, I thought that Christianity should have no such association. I was very much like, you know, no Christmas tree, no da-da-da-da-da. I was very much of that stable. Um, but being somewhat more thought through on how Christ Christ Christmas emerged out of paganism, I'm more, I'm more understanding of how the theology of the pagans actually finds its fulfillment in the incarnation of Christ. And it's interesting because though that association I now believe is actually not quite right, and uh, I'll point you to an, um, an article, um, Is Christianity a Pagan Ripoff by Kevin D. Young? You'll find that if you look that up, it's um, a great little article that actually shows that Christmas doesn't actually come from pagan festivals or a derivative of it and it's kind of incorporated into Christianity, it's actually taken from the fact that they believe that the resurrection, um, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ are all tied with the two greatest events they believe that ever happened on earth. And they believe that Jesus was conceived on the day that he was died. On the day that he was died. You know, died. And so in that sense, the, um, the conception leads us from March the 25th to nine months ahead December 25th. And that two traditions that were completely tied, Eastern and Western churches, both held this tradition that these things were done. And so when you actually do the research, you actually find that this didn't actually have anything to do with Roman pagan festivals at all. But it's actually derived from the fact that the conception 
and the death of Christ were believed by the early church to have been at the same point, that, that in a sense the history is, is, is linked to this particular day. The conception of Jesus and then the death and resurrection of Jesus. So again, this whole idea of the importance of Jesus being at the center of history is there. But one of the things, you know, but even having said that, one of the arguments that really won me over with the whole idea of, well, how do you, how do you deal with Christmas and this whole idea that it is actually linked to, um, to that? And, you know, actually, let me, let me make this point as well again. And it's one of those weird things where when you look at the history of, of the antagonism of Rome for so many years against Christians, the whole idea that people would, would now take a pagan festival on board especially early. Again, Christmas isn't really celebrated the way we understand it until like um, the 12th century. Um, it's quite weird because you wouldn't take up, I don't know, it's like almost taking up a Muslim festival in the midst of a Muslim country where you've been antagonized and trying to use that as your own festival. That's the kind of argument that I think de Young makes is it, was, it would have been inconceivable for them to, to they, they would wanted the furthest, um, wanted to be as far away from paganism as possible in order to make Christianity distinct, because that's why they were being persecuted, because they didn't, as it were, tangle with them. So let me make that point. But even so, one of the things <coughs> that was quite significant about, especially, I guess, within the northern hemisphere of, of, um, of I guess, Western civilization, was this idea that, on the 25th of December, it was the longest day. It was the longest night and the shortest day. And Solvictus, as the Romans used to celebrate, it was this whole idea that on the 25th of December was this idea that um, the sun god was now victorious over the dong nights. And that what you could now expect from the 25th of December, as we do actually witness, is that the nights now become shorter and the days become longer. So within nature, it was this whole idea that in the winter solstice, so to speak, that now light has now going to be winning. Light will now win, and light will conquer the darkness. So in the darkest, longest day, they celebrated this idea. And I, 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 I long adopted this idea that, in a sense, there's a subversive fulfillment there, that as pagan festivals look to this whole idea of who has conquered who, and light being conquered by darkness, then to some extent, Christ fulfills the pagan desire. Who now takes us out of this long winter and brings us into a period of, of better days, of hope? And it's Jesus. And so in that sense, Jesus becomes the fulfillment even of the pagan ideals. And one of the things that, I, again... Um, I, I appreciate is, is something that Lewis, C.S. Lewis, again, the great um, Christian writer and Christian apologist in many ways, conceived this because he was very much into this whole pagan, he loved the whole ancient pagan Norse because the Norse mythology and all the rest of it, and he saw how Christianity fulfilled the desires of these pagan cultures, that on the longest day of the night, we celebrate the victory of light over darkness. It's almost like John 1, isn't it? That picture of light conquering darkness and that Jesus, in a sense, is celebrated there. I want to take you to story time for Jack and Nori, for those who are old enough to remember. And um, 
I want to read from the Chronicles of Narnia. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So tuck yourself up. <coughs> Get your drinks. I just want to read this section because I think it's quite helpful. Now, the children have been running because they believe that they hear a sledge. Let me build the context for you. They hear a sledge and they think it's the witch. And the witch is chasing them. And, and, and they, they hide in this cave. But then Mr. Beaver comes out and shows them that something actually else is going on. It's all right, he was shouting. Come out, Mrs. Beaver. Come out, sons and daughters of Adam. It's all right. It's her. It isn't her. This was bad grammar, of course, but that is how beavers talk when they are excited. I mean, in Narnia, in our world, they usually don't talk at all. So Mrs. Beaver and the children came bundling out of the cave, all blinking in the daylight and with earth all over them and looking very frowsty and unbrushed and uncombed and with the sleep in their eyes. Come on, cried Mr. Beaver who was almost dancing with delight. Come and see. This is a nasty knock for the witch. It looks as if her power is already crumbling. What do you mean, Mr. Beaver? panted Peter, as they all scrambled up the steep bank of the valley together. Didn't I tell you, answered Mr. Beaver, that she made it always winter and never Christmas? Didn't I tell you? Well, just come and see. And when they were all at the top and did see, it was a sledge, and it was, a, and it was reindeer with bells on their harnesses. But they were far bigger than the witch's reindeer. They were not white, but brown. And on the sledge sat a person whom everyone knew the moment they set eyes on him. He was a huge man in a bright red robe, bright as holly berries, with a hood and had fur inside it, and great white beard that fell like a foamy waterfall over his chest. Everyone knew him. Because though you see people of this sort only in Narnia, you see pictures of them and hear them talked about even in our world, the world on this side of the wardrobe door. But when you really see them in Narnia, it is rather different. Some of the pictures of Father Christmas in our world make him look only funny and jolly. But now that the children actually stood looking at him, they didn't find, him, find it quite like that. He was so big and so glad and so real that he all become quite still. They felt very glad, but also solemn. I've come at last, he said. She has kept me out for a long time, but I have, cut, uh, I have, got, in, I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. You know, the idea of a perpetual winter in Narnia, it was always winter. It's a powerful one. And it's a one that, I guess, when you put it in the context of the incarnation, that every day before Christ's birth was a perpetual winter. There was, as it were, a world without hope. And as I said at the beginning, if that was all we had as a perpetual winter, and that it was based on our own efforts that we were ever going to get out of that, then Jesus wasn't going to bring any kind of warmth to the world. Then what point would that world have? In that sense, the warmth and the ending of winter, as it were, the, the whole idea of frosty relationships with God. In that sense, you know, Lewis sees that whole idea of how Christ and Christianity fulfills that. 
and ends, as it were, the tyranny of evil. And the tyranny of evil within. Ezekiel talks about this, isn't it? About the stony heart. And about how, actually, this is not really about the winter in terms of outside, again. It's not about the winter of those who you wish to be warmer people. It's actually about the winter of our own hearts. The frostiness of our own hearts. Who will bring warmth to that? Who will end, the war- who will end as it were, the coldness of our hearts, the stoniness of our hearts, and give us hearts of flesh that will now beat, that will now live for their real purpose. Stony hearts live for fragile material things. That will end. But hearts that beat, beat within the hearts of their creator, for their creator. That's a real heart. That's warmth. This is what Jesus came to end. The tyranny of the coldness of our hearts. And I want that to be our our reflection point today. Again, let me end with this quote from C.S. Lewis. Summing up Christmas. The Son of God becomes a man so that men can become sons of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful and you are, again, the meaning there, Lord Father, of all history. Lord, we're grateful, Father, that Luke has, has captured the Lord, the uniqueness of your birth. And Lord, for whatever reason people might have um, their issues with, you know, even the Christmas period as it is right now, we, we, you know, we all can obviously have our own issues. But yet, Lord, when we think about what it means for you to have been, as it were, born and conceived, Lord, to, to see the Lord Father that your uniqueness Within, within all of history. That the heavenly host had to come and bear witness to the fact that, Lord, this is not a mere birth. This is, as it were, the reason why we are alive. We live because he lives. And as it is said there, Lord God, at the right time in Romans 5, Jesus Christ came and died for us. So, Lord, we commit, dear Lord Father, that which we've learned today, Lord. We commit that which we, I guess we've been reminded of. And, Lord, help us to realize that, Father, our, our strength, our uniqueness as believers is found in this fact that Christ died, lived and died. And for that reason, there God was born, for that purpose. So, Lord, commit our hearts to this truth. May it refresh our hearts. May it refresh us, dear Lord God, in in what we say and what we do. May we be empowered by it and strengthened by it. And may we live it through all that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.